On the day when Moses had finished setting up the tabernacle and had anointed and consecrated it with all of its furnishings and had anointed and consecrated the altar with all its utensils, the chiefs of Israel, the heads of their father's houses who were the chiefs of the tribes who were over those who were listed, approached and brought their offerings before the Lord, six wagons and twelve oxen, a wagon for every two of the chiefs, and for each Uh, each one an ox. And they brought them before the tabernacle. And then the Lord said to Moses, accept uh, these from him, that they may be used in the service of the tent of meeting, and give them to the Levites, to each man according to his service. And so Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites. And two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service, and four oxen and eight, or I'm sorry, four wagons and eight oxen he gave to the sons of Merari, according to their service, under the direction of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the high priest. But to the sons of Kohath he gave none, because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And the chiefs offered offerings for the dedication of the altar on the day it was anointed. And the chiefs offered their offerings before the altar. And the Lord said to Moses, they shall offer their offerings, one chief each day for the dedication of the altar. He who offered his offering the first day was Nashon, the son of Amenadab of the tribe of Judah. And his offering was one silver plate whose weight was 130 shekels, one silver basin of 70 shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and both of them full of fine flour mixed with oil for a grain offering. One golden dish of ten shekels full of incense, one bull from the herd, one ram, one male lamb a year old for a burnt offering, one male goat for a sin offering, and for the sacrifice of peace offerings, two oxen, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs a year old. This was the offering of Nashon, the son of Amenadab, skipping down to chapter 8. Picking up in verse 14. Chapter 8, verse 14. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting, and when you have cleansed, uh, cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. For they are wholly given to me from among the people of Israel. Instead of all who opened the womb, the firstborn of all the people of Israel, I have taken them for myself. For all the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. And I have taken the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel. And I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons. From among the people of Israel, to do the service for the people of Israel at the tent of meeting, and to make atonement for the people of Israel, that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near to the sanctuary. Skipping down to chapter 9, verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the people of Israel keep the Passover at its appointed time. 
And on the fourteenth day of this month, at twilight, you shall keep it as its appointed time. According to all its statutes and all its rules, you shall keep it. And so Moses told the people of Israel that they should keep the Passover. And they kept the Passover in the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at twilight in the wilderness of Sinai, according to all, the Lord, all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the people of Israel did. Skipping down to verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And that evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. And at the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in the camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in the camp. And then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained uh, from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in the camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord they camped, and at the command of the Lord they set out. They kept charge of the Lord. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by Moses. A couple more verses. Chapter 10, verse 11. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony, and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. Skipping down to verse 35. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. Let's pray and ask for God's help. The Father in heaven, in these four chapters of your word, you do say a lot. And Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us, even if it's in large quantities of Scripture. We're thankful that we have your word. This morning, Lord, we pray that you uh, would speak your word in these four chapters to our hearts, uh, that you would apply uh, the balm that is needed uh, for our, our hearts to love you more. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. It's amazing how things that look so similar can actually be so different. Things like salt and sugar, and things like uh, powdered sugar and flour, uh, things like cornstarch and baking soda, like Pepsi and, and Coke, and, and apparently to a toddler... Uh, diaper cream looks the same as toothpaste. Uh, these things 
I guess, often look so similar, but actually, in their composition, are vastly different. Uh, They look the same, but they are not the same at all. Because if you like coffee, creamer, and sugar in your coffee, if you go and put two tablespoons of salt instead of sugar, you will quickly be disappointed with what you've just made yourself. Or if you put flour instead of powdered sugar in your icing, you're not going to like how that turns out either. Or if you put cornstarch instead of baking soda in your cake mix, you're not going to like how that turns out either. Or if you give a Coke to a a Pepsi lover or a Pepsi to a Coke lover, you'll quickly find out that those two things are not the same at all. Or if you brush your teeth with diaper cream instead of toothpaste, you likely won't like that either. These things, again, they look the same on the outside, but on the inside, they're completely different. Uh, They function differently as substances. They taste and work to accomplish different purposes. And perhaps the same idea could really be applied to to Christians and and non-Christians, right? Uh, Lots of times we, we look the same. We look uh, just alike on the outside. We drive the same cars. We have the same jobs. We take our kids to the same uh, sporting events. We buy our groceries at the same store. We live in the same neighborhoods. We even have the same sufferings. But are we really the same? Even though on the outside we look similar and we look the same. Are we, are we really the same? And if not, well then, how are we different? What, what, what differentiates us as Christians from the world that lives around us? I think this rather lengthy, admittedly, passage uh, kind of gives us a framework for how we as Christians are different from the world around us, are different from the other people around us that even look like we do. This is the same question that that kind of stands in the background of what's going on at this point in the book of Numbers. God has, up to this point, saved his people out of slavery. Uh, He's delivered them from Egypt. He's brought them to Mount Sinai. and He's given them a year and a month to get to know him, to learn about who he is. And now that year is up and it's time to leave. The people are getting ready to leave Sinai for the promised land. And the thing about the promised land is that for the people of Israel, it's a blessing, right? It's a gift from the Lord that He's giving them to, to dwell there and to, uh, to worship Him there and to uh, maybe do Eden over again there. But for the Canaanites who live in Canaan, it's judgment. For the Canaanites, who probably look like similar people to the Israelites, at least on the outside, It's God's wrath. When God displaces them from their own land and gives that land to the people of Israel, he's doing two things. He's judging sin on the one hand, the sin of the Canaanites, but he's also giving his people a blessing. 
Right? The Canaanites are subjects of God's wrath. They are being punished for their iniquity. They are being judged for their sin, while the Israelites are being blessed because God loves them and because, they're, at least here, they're acting according to obedience. They're fulfilling their covenant vows. What, differenti- what differentiates the two groups is one is being judged for their sin because of their worldliness. The other is being blessed because of their holiness. But the question that's kind of looming in the background is, will the Israelites continue to look like Israelites, at least on the inside, or will they begin to look more and more like the Canaanites? Right? Will their, they may look the same on the outside, but will their hearts continue to be different? Right now, they're devoted to the Lord. They love the Lord God Almighty, but will they continue to do that? Or will they slip over time? And become more and more like the Canaanites. Will they become the same? Or will they remain different? Well, that's the, really the same question that, that you and I have before us every day. Will we, will we look the same? Will we become the same? Will we be, to put it in John's words, be of the world? Or will we just simply do as God commands, live in the world, but live unto him? Will we slide and slip to become more like the world or will we remain devoted to God? The answer must be that we must remain different. And one of the first ways that we remain different is we remain a people who give themselves to God more than they give to anything else, right? We we remain a people who give themselves to God more than we give ourselves to God to anything else. Now, there are admittedly a thousand different things that we could be doing right now, and there are a thousand different things that we could give our lives to. We could give our lives to being the best in our profession, to be the best accountant or doctor or whatever the case. We could be the best at one particular sport. We could be the best at name it. Do we give ourselves to all of those things or do we give ourselves to the Lord? Well, the answer is, according to Numbers chapter 7, that we must remain a people who gives ourselves to the Lord. And in Numbers chapter 7, the people of God are devoting themselves to the Lord. Right in verse 1, we're told that now Moses has finished uh, building and setting up the tabernacle and the altar, which means that, that worship is ready to go. Um, and then, but from, from that point on, For the rest of the chapter, which is like 89 verses, it's the people of God devoting themselves and their things to God's worship. The rest of the chapter is consumed with what the people of God are are giving or devoting to the Lord in verses 2 to 10. It's these carts, right? Carts and oxen. It seems silly, but it's carts and oxen that are meant to haul to carry the tabernacle of the Lord, at least the things that could be carried on, ta- on, on carts. And then in verses 11 to 88, each tribe is offering their offerings and dedicating to the worship at the tabernacle. Each of the 12, I only read one, but each of the 12 tribes are worshiping and giving liberally. They all give the same thing, which is no small amount of things. They give uh, silver plates that weighed about three pounds. They give silver basins that weighed nearly two pounds, both of them full of flour and oil, They give golden dishes with incense. They give bulls and rams and lambs for burnt offerings. They give male goats for sin offerings. They give oxen and rams and goats and lambs for peace offerings. And then 
the climax of the chapter is in verse 89, where after the people of God have given themselves and given their things to God for his worship, God is pleased. God is speaking from the tabernacle. He's speaking from above the ark of the covenant. He's speaking to, his, to, to Moses, to his people, which is code for God is pleased with the people's devotion that they have offered. It's amazing to think about how far the people have been brought. They've brought out of slavery, out of Egypt, to this mountain where they've learned about who God is, and now they're doing finally the exact thing they were made to do, which is devote themselves to the Lord. Which is actually the, the one thing that we were made to do. There's overlap here. We also were made to give, to devote ourselves to God. By uh, How do we do that? Well, there's a number of different ways. By doing what we're doing now. By devoting ourselves to God in our worship. By devoting ourselves to His Word. By devoting ourselves to prayer. By devoting our kids to Him. By devoting our careers to Him. By devoting to Him our marriages that exemplify the gospel. Wherein two people sacrificially love each other. All of these, ways, all of these things are, are ways in which we can give Devote ourselves to the Lord. But I think one of the ways that we devote ourselves to the Lord that also differentiates us from the world is by devoting to Him this day, this particular day of the week. Uh, what's in a lot of Reformed circles, and I didn't ever hear this term until I became Reformed, the Lord's Day. We often call it not, not Sunday, but, but the Lord's Day. Why? Because this is the day that belongs to the Lord. And this is the one day where God's people openly and actively do life different than everyone around them. The world has a lot of different uses for Sunday. There's even uh, some obviously think that, that Sunday is the day to, to fertilize and water your grass. There's a company even named after fertilizer and water for grass. Uh, apparently you're supposed to do it on Sunday because the company's name is Sunday. The world often counts Sunday as just a second Saturday, Sunday fun day. We go and do just things that are fun. Whatever we want to do, that's what we do. But in reality, that's not what the Bible teaches us. That's not what the Bible teaches us to do with the Lord's Day. This This is the one day a week where who we are devoted to stands out from the rest of the world. It's the one day a week where the world gets to see who it is that we belong to. How do they see that? Well, they, they, they see us resting. They see us worshiping. They see us resting some more. And then they see us coming to fellowship with God's people. And they see us spending time with our families. They see us coming back to worship in the evening. They see us giving this day in its fullness to the Lord God Almighty. Our devotion to the Lord makes us stand out. And it also, on this particular day, nourishes our souls. And if all that is the case, if, if this day actually functions that way, if it differentiates us from the people around us, then what do we need to do? If it differentiates from the world, but it also feeds and nourishes our soul, what are we to do with this particular day? 
I would say the first thing that we need to do with this particular day is to guard it. Is to guard it. Because everything in our lives always tries to encroach upon this day. Right? I gotta make that Walmart grocery pickup order. Right? I gotta do all these other things that I didn't get done yesterday and that I'm gonna have no time to do this upcoming week. I have to get ahead on my schedule. Right? Our, our work and our hobbies, even our own desires, always try to encroach on what this day is supposed to be, which is a day of rest and worship. So my, my exhortation is, is to, to work hard to preserve it so that it remains a day. It remains a day in which you devote yourself to the Lord and you devote yourself to, to His worship and so differentiate yourself from the rest of the world. Not only does it differentiate us from the rest of the world, but if we do Sundays right, it makes Monday through Saturday different. It not only makes Monday through Saturday different, but it makes me different on Monday through Saturday. It sets me apart from others around me. Our devotion to God expressed in what we do with one-seventh of our time is, is one thing that differentiates us because we devote it to the Lord, but another thing that differentiates us from, from the rest of the people around us is our proximity to God. The people of God have been given proximity to Him. This is what we see in Numbers chapter 8. Uh, we realize that in Numbers chapters 3 and 4, as we uh, Pastor Michael's already talked about that the Levites, we've been talking about the Levites a lot. And, and what do they do? How do they function? Well, God has set apart the Levites instead of all the firstborn for his worship and work. Right? The Levites have one purpose. They have one job, which is to serve the temple, serve the tabernacle, to promote the worship of God, to carry the tabernacle, and so on and so forth. Right? Their job is to serve the worship of God. And by extension, what that means is that they are the people closest in proximity to God, in a sense. Because where is God speaking from? In chapter 7, verse 89, he's speaking from the tabernacle. Now, where's the cloud in, in, verse, in, in chapter 9? Where's the cloud residing? What's well, residing at the tabernacle? Where are the Levites? They're around the tabernacle. Well, they are the people who have been given proximity to God and to the things of God. There are people who are responsible for worship, for offering offerings inside the tabernacle. There are people who wake up every single day whose job it is to worship the Lord and to walk in obedience, to be exemplary humans before all the rest of Israel, which is a privilege. Meeting with God and ministering to His people was a privilege. They had, they had the privilege of proximity. They had a special relationship with the Lord God Almighty. When I was a, when I was a kid in school, uh, one of the things that I always tried to do was, was to, to get my teachers to like me. I, I, liked, I liked to be the, the teacher's pet, the one that the teacher 
uh, trusted, you know, I wanted to be the one who was the line leader. I wanted to be the one who got to write on the board. I wanted to be the one that the teacher trusted so that I could do special things, so that I could, you know, make it a run an errand to the principal's office and run an errand to another teacher's classroom. You know, I, I wanted to, to have that special relationship with the teacher that other kids didn't have. That's kind of what the Levites are here. They're, they're set apart from the rest of the nation to do one thing, which is to serve the Lord God Almighty and to, to, to serve Him, particularly in worship. They literally had the best job on earth, which is, which is why when the people of Israel actually do make it to Canaan, the Levites don't get an inheritance. They don't get a section of the land. Now, their blessing is ministering to God and ministering to His people. They were special. They stood out from the rest of the tribes. They were given a privilege. And it's a privilege that that once we turn pages in the New Testament, that not just one tribe of people get. It's a privilege that, that all of God's people receive. First Peter chapter 2 verse 9, Peter says, but, but you, talking to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right, the Levites in chapter 8 had to undergo this, this special cleansing ceremony in order to actually be in proximity to God. That's not a problem anymore. Christ, our great high priest, has cleansed all of us by his blood. He's washed away our sin. Uh, Holiness before the Lord is not a problem anymore because we've been given Christ's. All of us have been been given proximity to God himself through Christ, our mediator, the only mediator. And it's a proximity that, that, that God has not only given to each one of us in, in Christ, but it's a, it's a proximity that he's, he's given to us in the Holy Spirit as well, who dwells in our hearts. How much closer can you get to God than him dwelling in your heart? Well, what, is, what does this proximity mean? Well, well, if you're close to God, if you're near God, and we also know, as we are in Christ, we also know that that means access. That means we get an open line of communication between God and ourselves. As we just talked about in Sunday school, we, our, our prayer is through Christ, our mediator. And that mediation is available anytime. And it's true and it's real mediation. That means if we have proximity, if we have access to the Lord God Almighty then that means that we can pray, that we can pray like someone's listening. That means that we can talk to God like there's actually someone on the other end. Because there is. It also means that for our our moms in the room, that that when you're home alone with, with a plurality of children for nine hours straight in a day with, no, with your patience on edge and no one else to carry a conversation with. You have someone to carry a conversation with. Christ. 
It means that, that for, for those of us who struggle with sin and the same sin repeatedly over and over and over and over and, and for those of us who struggle with temptation that won't go away, it means that, that you can pray to God and remind Him of His promise that with every temptation there comes a way out. Because he is faithful. Proximity and access, an open line of communication with the Lord God Almighty, also means that for those of us in the room who feel like we have no one else in this world who knows the innermost parts of our hearts, that we really do have someone. Because Jesus knows our hearts. And it's Jesus who draws near to the lonely and brokenhearted. And that, that's available to, to all of us in the room. If through Jesus we have access to the God of the whole universe, but also to the God who has made particular promises to his people that we get to remind him of and, and apply through prayer to our God. These promises that he's faithful to keep, just like, just like he kept the promise to Israel. Right? The, the third thing that, that differentiates the people of God, especially here in Numbers, differentiate the people of God from those around them, is that these are a people who have experienced God's faithfulness. We know what it means to be held fast by a God who loves his people to the uttermost. This is, what, this is what's going on when the people are celebrating the Passover in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Uh, just over, again, kind of putting it in context, just over one year ago, God had proved his faithfulness to his promises after 400 and something years of nothing. He proved his faithfulness to his promises by delivering his people from, or from, from slavery in Egypt. And one of the ways that he did that was he made them practice the Passover. Right? God proved his faithfulness to his people and saved them from his wrath by commanding them to smear blood on the top of their tents to protect the firstborn from certain death in the presence of God's wrath. And God proved himself faithful. The firstborn of Israel did not die. And then God led his people out of Egypt and delivered them from slavery to here at the foot of Mount Sinai where he would reveal himself to them through his law. God was faithful to his people. These people of God, the people of God, are people who have experienced God's faithfulness. God, they know that, that God is just as faithful as the sun is to rise in the morning and set in the evening. They know, they know God to be someone whom they can count on. They know He will be there. That He will never leave or forsake His people. And, and if God is faithful to them, God is also faithful to you. Because the Passover is actually not fulfilled here. It's fulfilled at the end of the Gospels. When Christ Jesus, the Lord, who, He becomes the Passover lamb. Christ Jesus becomes the spotless lamb 
whose blood was shed for the remission of sins, whose blood was shed to shelter the people of God from God's wrath. Right? Christ Jesus is the one who's been faithful to his people, who's delivered them from their sin, and not only, not only forgiven them of their sin, but, but broken sin's dominion over them. And so even on the worst days, even on the worst days, we can still say that we're a people who have experienced the faithfulness of God, because we've experienced in Christ, we, we've experienced it by being saved from our sins, and we've experienced it personally because of all the times that we can remember that God's answered our prayers. We can remember He's been faithful to hear us, and, and then all again, those, those times we don't remember, those times we've forgotten where we've prayed and God's answered according to exactly what we've prayed. God's shown Himself not only to be faithful to this people, but also to be faithful to this people. And this people. But there's times, even though we know the gospel by heart, there's times, even still, when we wonder, don't we? We wonder if God is going to be faithful this time. Is God going to answer my prayer this time? Is God going to heal me this time? Is God going to heal my loved one this time? Is God going to provide this time? Is God going to bring my child back this time? I can't answer any of those questions, but I do have two things that are absolutely relevant to the answer of all those questions. And the first one is, is that God doesn't change. God's faithful today. He's just as faithful today as he was in Egypt. And he's just as faithful today as he was when he was hanging on a tree outside of Jerusalem. That's always faithful. It doesn't change. The second thing is, 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 is that, that God is both eternal and infinitely wise. He knows all of the past. He's existed before the beginning of time. He knows all the past, but he also knows everything that's going to happen hereafter. Which is something that we don't have the advantage of. But he's also infinitely wise in that he knows what is best for us better than we do. So, if God doesn't answer your prayer exactly according to how you've prayed... It doesn't mean he's less faithful. It just means he's more wise. We know God's faithfulness. We know that that doesn't waver. We know that that doesn't change who he is. God's people are aware of, of, they've experienced God's faithfulness, but they're also a people who are enamored by his presence. They are people who, who are blessed by God's presence. And that's what we see at the, at the end of chapter 9 and on into chapter 10, where God's people are privileged with God's presence. God promised uh, that he would be with his people by way of a cloud, that, that when the cloud moved, the people would move. And when the cloud stopped, the people would stop. And that's what happened. We read about how that, that, that actually came to fruition 
He guided his people. He directed his people by cloud, either moving or standing still. And even more, at the end of chapter 10, God only, he not only led his people, he was not only present with his people on this journey, but he was fighting for his people. Notice Moses' prayer there at the end of chapter 10. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. What is God doing? He's fighting for his people, even as he's present with his people. And God is no less present with us. This is one of the things that makes us stand out, that makes us different from everyone around us, is that, that we are people who are blessed with God's presence. We are blessed with the Holy Spirit residing in our hearts. God's with us. And if that is true, and it is, then that means that there is never a moment, quote, when no one else is around. Now, for a few of us, that can be quite terrifying. Because we realize that what we think we do in secret is not actually in secret. Everything that I do is, in, is before the face of God. But for other of us, it can be just as comforting. Because, again, like I mentioned a moment ago, some of us feel really lonely. And we feel that way perpetually. And to you, I would, I would, for, for those folks in the room, I would, I would just give this little bit of pastoral counsel. If you feel lonely, right? if you feel like you've got no one who knows the innermost recesses of your heart, if you've no one to talk to, no one that, that's, that's around that, that, that will carry on a conversation with you, I would urge you to open your Bible and pray through the Psalms. Because the Psalms include other people who are feeling exactly like I am. Lonely, deserted. But they also include the promises of God. And they, they, they include how God is always faithful to his people and he's with his people. And when I pray through the Psalms, I'm not only praying my prayer to God, but I'm, I'm, I'm reciting in my mouth God's words to me. So by implication, loneliness is no longer true. Which again is, is, is a blessing that no one else on the face of the earth has the advantage of having. Right? Only God's people experience these things. Only God's people are blessed with the privilege of the presence of God. Only God's people are blessed, are familiar with how God is faithful. Only God's people are given proximity, are given access to God. And only God's people are devoted to God himself. Right? These are the things that, that make us different from the world around us. It's God's ministry to us. These are the things that make us different on the inside, even if we look the same on the outside. I want to close with one, one application directed specifically to, to one group in the room, and that's to teenagers. Because for teenagers, the thought of being different 
is absolutely terrifying. It's the thing that you work around all day, every day. I don't want to, I just want to hide in the crowd. The fear of, of being different, of differentiating yourself from, from the folks around you is what, what drives some of us, or drove me, or drives you to, to do a lot of really dumb things. Because well, that's what everybody else is doing. I might as well do the same thing as well. If I don't do the same thing, then I'm going to look different. I'm going to be different. Let me tell you, please don't be afraid of being different. You will regret a lot of things that that fear drives you to do. You will regret a lot of things that that fear drives you to do. You won't regret being different by being devoted to the Lord God Almighty. It may cost you some things here and now, but you will absolutely not regret that 10 years from now. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. We realize even as we read these chapters that the people of God are doing a lot of things and they're being obedient, they're listening to your commands, they're obeying your word, but... All of this is really because of the redemption that you've accomplished in them. And whatever differentiates us from the rest of the world around us is not our good works. It's not really the way that we behave. It's the hearts that you have changed. It's your ministry to us that differentiates us from the world around us. And so, Father, we pray that you would increase that ministry, that you would give us confidence in our identities in Christ, and that you would take care of us and remain faithful to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.